Come, Holy Spirit, in power, that the word of God I now proclaim will penetrate the hearts and minds of your people to the glory of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. You may be seated and welcome. My text this morning is from the passage we just read, Paul's epistle to the church at Thessalonica. It was a very prominent city and the capital of the Greek province of Macedon. Thessalonica is today, to this very day, 2,000 years later, the second largest city in Greece. Some translations use the word letter. Some translations use the word epistle. I, no big deal, but I, I prefer epistle because it's a little more descriptive, I believe, of what they truly are. Epistles are formal letters, usually lengthier than the average letter, and they are considered authoritative. The 21 epistles that we find in the New Testament from Peter and James and John and the Apostle Paul are official letters that contain words of both correction as well as condemnation. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's how to fix it. Here's what you're doing right. Paul's letter, for example, to the Corinthians is heavy, both letters, on correction. Lots of problems in the church at Corinth. And we should really be glad for that, not, not in a cynical way or negative way, because it instructs us, here's how to fix things, here's what goes wrong, and so forth. So it's very, very helpful. And uh, just a brief sidebar along that same line, uh, the teachings and instruction and the wisdom of these letters absolutely transcends all time and culture. They are truly timeless and as relevant to us as they were 2,000 years ago. I find that astonishing. That's just a remarkable thing. You can't say that about very much of ancient literature, that it is really works for us just as well as it did back in those days. Well, notice how he addresses them in verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction or much assurance. Full conviction and assurance of what? Well, that they are indeed what Paul says they are, God's people who are and will finally be saved. That's the end to which God has chosen them and us if we are indeed his people. Now, chosen is in most translations translated with the word election. Now, don't let that word distract you or or cause your hair to catch on fire, or anything like that right now. Uh, for our purposes this morning, election simply refers to those who are truly saved and who will be among those who are finally saved, as opposed to those who profess to be Christians and followers of Jesus, when in fact they are not. It's just, it's just a shortened way of, of saying that very thing that I just said. The most sobering and downright frightening statement in this regard comes from our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, 21, when he says these ominous words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, meaning the last day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then our Lord says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Well, all this raises a very important question. 
Can you and I know? Can we have assurance? Can we have any degree of certainty that we are among those who will persevere in our faith and in our walk with God and therefore inherit eternal life? Well, my answer is indeed we can. And this is how Paul begins. Notice verse 5. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, that is full assurance. Thus he gives thanks and credit and praise to God, not to the Thessalonians. Not, not at all. And the same goes for us. You and I, if we are saved, we're not saved because we persevered in the faith. We're saved because of the grace of God. And ultimately that is, that is true of all believers. But Paul does commend them for being such good examples. Uh, is how it's translated. A word that is sometimes translated model or pattern. Or was they're the prototype. They are, this is his way of saying to us and to all who have lived since then, be like them. You want, you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus? Be like the Thessalonians. Would, would that, that be said of all of us? Amen? So much so that their influence spread to other parts of the empire. He also speaks of the effects of their faith, their fruit, if you will, the evidence by which Paul knows that they are God's people. And he mentions three in particular here in his opening chapter. First, con- first commendation, I almost said condemnation, first commendation. He gave up their, they gave up their idols. They abandoned their idols. That in itself was a huge act of faith. See, the gods and goddesses of the ancient Roman Empire served, among other things, as a sort of cultural glue that helped hold the vast empire together. Uh, The festivals, parades, feasts, rituals, and so forth, honoring their gods, were very much a part of the culture. They were the equivalents, for example, of our holidays, our celebrations like the 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and so on. Now, this was costly for those new believers, for they not only gave up the symbols of their culture, the things like the statues and the images of their gods, they not only abandoned those, but also their beliefs. They abandoned their belief, their trust in those gods, their common faith with friends and family members, neighbors whom they did business with. But consider what they got in return. They got something far better. They got it, in Paul's words, they got in, uh, as Paul says, the one true and living God. That's what they got in return for abandoning those gods. They got the one true and living God. So my question to you this morning is, who or what are your gods? Who is your God? The ancients trusted their gods and goddesses, and their devotion and worship was all about appeasing those gods, staying in their good graces so that they could help them out. It's kind of a quid pro quo thing going there. But the Christian faith turned all that upside down, and it still does. For the gospel is not about what we do for God. It is all about what God has done for us in Jesus. For us and for our salvation, as our liturgy reminds us every week, our idols, though, are even more deceptive, more deadly than those mythical gods and goddesses of ancient Greece and Rome. Things like the allure of wealth and the security it offers us, the stuff that we can buy, the things we can enjoy with it. Lust, broad term for all kinds of things, the lust for pleasure, the lust for power, for fame and fortune, for the approval of others, 
And the list just goes on and on and on and on. We have almost no end to gods, false gods. Second commendation. Second commendation, they became servants of the one Paul calls the true and living God. That's a pretty good indicator of who and what our gods are, is it not? Who do we serve? Who and what we serve is or becomes our gods. Paul commends them saying in verse 9, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now service is a very big picture kind of concept for there are many, many ways that we serve God, not the least of which is via our worship, what we're here doing today, of course, both publicly like this and privately, the time that we spend in prayer, time that we spend in the scriptures, not just corporately, but privately as well. There's simply no substitute for these habits, these disciplines, no substitute whatsoever. Those who are not engaged in those things, I can promise you, uh, we, we may get a little sidetracked every now and then, but uh, if indeed you are a child of God, your faith and your strength, your spiritual strength is just going to dwindle. It's, it's going to re- be reduced to nothing. Another way we serve God is in the service of others. When we render service to those around us, our Lord makes this perfectly clear in Matthew 25 where he describes those who will be welcomed to inherit God's kingdom as those who served him by serving others. Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Want want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed today? Be a blessing to someone. That's how we get blessed. Be a blessing to someone. It's mostly, and again, we, we could expand on this. We're not going to talk about all that that entails, of course. But you know, it's mostly just about showing up. That's, that's most of what being a blessing is, and it always starts with just showing up. Moves on to listening. Sometimes you just need to listen. It's about caring, doing the caring thing, what is truly good for someone, not necessarily what they want, but what's truly good for them. Well, the third commendation. The Thessalonian believers are anticipating, anxiously waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. Paul reminds them, he says, you turn from God, or I'm sorry, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Does that surprise you a little? The idea of waiting, that that's, that's a great virtue? The first two, giving up idols and serving others, well, those naturally make sense within the confines of Christianity and the, uh, the, the way it works. They're pretty big deals, in fact. But waiting? I mean, what else can we do? <laughs> those Old Testament saints, those who lived before the time of Christ, were waiting for, expecting the Messiah, the seed of the woman who was promised in 
Genesis chapter 3. And we'll begin celebrating that in just a few weeks, six weeks, in fact, when we celebrate Advent, right around the corner. Jesus promised to return. The same Jesus who we celebrate promised to return, to welcome the church, to, as an old hymn of my childhood puts it, to catch away his bride. He is going to come and catch us away. Later in this letter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, he says this to them, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. There is great courage in those words, is there not? Great encouragement for all of us, and we we need to remind ourselves. However, our text also reminds us that he is coming in judgment as well. As the Nicene Creed puts it, he will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now, for us as believers, this will mean that our salvation will finally be made complete. Full and final deliverance from sin's penalty, which our Lord achieved at the cross, from sin's power to rule and to mess up our lives, and from its presence. It will forever be a thing of the past. Not only for those who like the Thessalonians, I should say, but only, but only for those who like the Thessalonians, as verse 10 says, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The idea is not just that we wait. Like say we wait for a traffic light to change or for your turn in line at the store or to vote. And if you had to wait to vote this year, some of us have. <laughs> no, it's not that kind of waiting. There's really not much else we can do in those situations. No, the idea here is that our eyes are fixed. They are focused on things above this world and its agenda because we eagerly and expectantly are looking for the Lord's return. I had a professor one time who used to say, I'm not, I'm not looking for the undertaker. I'm looking for the upper taker, meaning the Lord coming back and returning for us. That's a good way to put it. That's the idea that our eyes are fixed. They're focused on things that are above this world and its agenda. We eagerly expect the Lord's return. Now, some would hear me say this and say, well, uh, just more pie in the sky, by and by stuff, right? Oh, no, not at all. Dean Michael pointed out two weeks ago, it is those who are the most heavenly-minded who do the most earthly good. It's just almost without fail. And why is that? Because, to put it in a nutshell, they live for Jesus 24-7, who didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life for others. And that's what those who are followers of Jesus do for others. And we do so knowing, as St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not for nothing. It matters. Why? Because you matter. Your life matters. Not, uh, not someday, but now. And not just for now, but forever. Even the simple act, as our Lord said, of giving a drink of water to a thirsty person. Nothing difficult about that or earth-shattering. A number of years ago, R.C. Sproul, some of you 
familiar with R.C.'s works, the late R.C. Sproul, great theologian. He wrote an article called Now Counts Forever. And here's what he says. Now counts because we are creatures who have an origin and a destiny that is rooted and grounded in God. I know I am a creature of eternal significance. If that is so, then my life counts. What I do today counts forever. In closing, I just want to say this. No one wants the pandemic to be over more than I do. I think, of course, we all do. But my concern, one of my concerns, is that the lessons learned will soon be forgotten, if in fact we learned them at all. That for many, it will signal a return to business as usual. In a world that has long since been marred and scarred by the cultural revolution of the 60s, which, among other things, has reduced us to a secular culture. A culture in which there is no right or wrong, we're told. I mean, what's right for me might not be right for you. What's wrong for you is just my opinion, that sort of thing. But the real danger is that secularism is life cut off from eternity. It is cut off from anything ultimate or of lasting value. It reduces life to that which must be lived in the here and now with no eternal consequences, no eternal dimension to them whatsoever. So that ultimately all then that matters is me and the here and now, which means nothing that I do or say ultimately matters. I read recently that depression, and not just for the virus, but depression, especially among college students who are at the prime of life and living their dream out, is is at an all-time high. Upwards of over 50% of college students are clinically depressed. And I can't help but wonder if, if this doesn't have something to do with it. The idea that if you suddenly you come of age and you start thinking about life and your life, you realize none of it matters anyway. What difference does it make? We can go down that road. As believers, I don't see how we can. We certainly don't need to. Or we can be like the Thessalonians who really got it. And we can spend our days as they did, refusing to be seduced by the idols and gods of this age, by serving others, and by eagerly awaiting our Lord's return. And he will be back. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.